Welcome. Thank you for coming. We're excited to open God's word. I took off my jacket already because I know pastor gets hot up here. And I figured by the end of the sermon, I would probably take it off anyway. So um, another thing that I realized why pastor wears neckties, uh, why he wears bow ties. There is nowhere to attach a lapel mic when you have a tie on. So I think he wears a bow tie just so he has somewhere to attach the lapel mic. So I'll try and refrain from moving the one side or the other and try and stay right in front of uh, the mic here. When pastor asked me to preach, he said that um, that I could preach till two o'clock. So uh, so we're going to go through an entire book of scripture, uh, not Exodus, but we're going to be jumping to the book of Micah. Um, and I'm sure if I preach till two o'clock, you all wouldn't stay till two o'clock anyway. So we'll try and end um, on time. Let's just open with a word of prayer real quick. Lord God, we just pray that through your word, through the reading of uh, the book of Micah, that you would be glorified, you would be honored, that your word would be proclaimed uh, through me in spite of me, and that um, ultimately your will is done and that truth is proclaimed this morning that you would get all the glory, all the honor. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you're not aware, I have three three children, Micah, uh, seven months. Uh, Daniel is our middle child. He is uh, almost two. I guess he'll be two next month coming up, so that's coming up quick. And then Asher, our oldest, um, is three, about three and a half. Um, and I'm putting Micah to bed on Friday night, and... There's a long hallway that goes down between Micah's room and Asher's room. And as I'm putting Micah to bed, I hear this loud noise going across the wall. I'm like, what is that? So I get Micah, I go out into the hallway, and here Asher is racing a truck down the wall. In in his defense, I've never told him not to do that before, but I am trying to put Micah to bed. So I tell him, I'm putting Micah to bed. Can you please not do that? So I go back in, I I tend to Micah and still get him ready. And what do you think I hear? This truck back on the wall. (laughs) So I go back outside, back out, and I look at Asher. I say, Asher, you have two options. You can either not put the truck on the wall, or I'm going to take it from you, or you can play with it on the ground and you can have your truck. So I'm standing there with Micah, and Asher puts the truck maybe six inches away from the wall. And I say, Asher, and he says, it's not on the wall. That's, that's fair. You got, you got me there. And over time, I'm just standing there watching him. And over time, he gets closer and closer to the wall. And I guess the temptation was overwhelming for him where he puts the truck on the wall. Um, so even in spite, in light of my impending judgment that he is going to lose this truck, he decides that, well, let's see if this is actually going to happen and puts it back against the wall. I think that's similar to the culture that we live in. I know that's a three-year-old, but I think that's similar to the culture we live in where we try and find the line and we get as close to that line as we can possibly get. And we say, well, we're not sinning. We're just going to keep getting closer and closer to that line. And even though there is judgment in the word of God, even though God um, declares this against us, we say, well, it's not that bad. And then we eventually get so close that the temptation is so overwhelming that we cross that line. And I think what we're going to see in the book of Micah, that's exactly what Israel did as a nation. They crossed the line and they went too far. I think Micah, 
And uh, besides the Holy Spirit leading me to that book and the fact that we named one of our children Micah, I don't know why I decided to preach on Micah today, but I think Micah is probably one of the most underread books of the Bible that should probably want to be, be one of the most overread books. And the goal isn't to dig deep into all the different intricacies of uh, Micah. There is a ton, and I'm going to kind of point some of them out where hopefully you can do some further studying on your own. But my goal is to whet your appetite, get you excited maybe about one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. If you're not sure where it is, it's somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. It is in, the, it is in there, so towards the end of the Old Testament. So I'm going to try and refrain from going deep a whole bunch. There's going to be a couple application points, but I'm going to try and refrain from going um, too deep. And hopefully you can mark some areas in your Bible or in your notes to dig deeper on your own. Mike is coming into a culture where it's feel good preaching, right? We're going to preach and we're going to declare whatever the audience wants to hear, uh, whatever's going to make you feel good, whatever's going to line the preacher's pocket with money. We were joking. I, I'm not getting paid to uh, preach this morning, but whatever is going to line the preacher's uh, pocket with money, that's uh, kind of the culture that Micah is walking into. And I don't think it's hard to think that of a culture that we're in that might be similar to something Micah's walking into, where it's feel-good preaching, where we think that we have the title of Christian, so that means that we're saved, right? And we put our hope in our title instead of in our relationship with God. And what Micah does is he comes in to the midst of all these false prophets and stands firm on truth, stands firm on the word of God. Israel wasn't, and we're going to see what's going to happen to them. Our key verse is Micah 6, 8. And Micah 6, 8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We're going to use this verse as our litmus test throughout the entire scripture. So we're going to keep coming back to Micah 6, 8. Micah 1, 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So this is Micah. Micah is short for Micaiah, which means um, who is like the Lord. And you'll notice in uh, chapter 7, verse 8, he actually makes a play on his name when he says, who is like you. And there's a lot of those intricacies in Micah that we're not going to be able to flesh out today. And I'll try and keep pointing them out to you, though. So, and it's the word of the Lord that came to Micah. So first and foremost, Micah gets up and he says, you know, here is my professional opinion as a prophet. No, Micah doesn't say that. It starts off by saying, this is the word of the Lord that came to Micah. This is God speaking through Micah. Not here's my opinion. And I think today we get a lot of the preacher's opinion. And I think it's something that I'm so grateful for with this church um, that we have a pastor who is willing to divide the word of God rightly and stand on truth. I don't think that happens in most churches. And I just pray that we never take that for granted. So, and what is it concerning? It's concerning Samaria, and we're going to flex Samaria and Jerusalem, and we're going to flesh that out here. Verse 2, hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. 
So we see that this is a universal message. Oh, people. So this has universal application, um, but he's going to narrow his focus to specifically talk to Israel and Samaria and Jerusalem. And it's going to be the Lord that the sovereign Lord may witness against you all who are in it. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this because of Jacob's transgression, because the house, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? So when God comes down, he is going to leave a footprint and the mountains are going to melt like wax. And we see some symbolism here because where are they going to erect their idols? They are going to erect their idols on the mountains, the high places. And essentially what we have here is God is going to come down and destroy those idols. He is going to smash them to pieces and they are going to melt like wax. And then it's going to be concerning Samaria and Jerusalem was supposed to be the holy place. So we have Samaria, which was, um, you know, corrupt. And then we have Jerusalem, which was supposed to have the holy place. And we see that the sins of Samaria came all the way down to Jerusalem. I'm not going to read all of Second Kings 16 for you, but Second Kings 16, two through three, just a snippet says, um, and this is Ahaz, the king of Judah. Unlike David, his father. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son to the fire. So Israel and even Jerusalem has walked away from God. And in verse six, you'll see that Micah predicts the complete destruction of the northern Israel and warns the people of this impending judgment. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place of, for planting vineyards, you know, wipe it out. It's going to be a place to plant vineyards. Pour her stones into the, into the valleys and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will be again used. So when God makes a judgment, his promises hold fast. And you'll see, if you look in history, in 721, there's the destruction of um, the fall of Samaria and then the complete destruction in 107 B.C. So when God proclaims justice, when he proclaims uh, promises, um, he is going to hold fast to those promises. You can um, see that. And then you're going to have some symbolism and some literal interpretation here at the end in verse 7. So we say, Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Basically, Israel has prostituted themselves to other gods and they're going to all these golden idols that they erected. They're going to be torn down by their destruction and then they're going to be again used for prostitution. So you can kind of see some uh, symbolism here. And it's all because of their sins that God's will judge them. So what is the litmus test that we have here? Did the nation of Israel walk justly with God or did they act justly? No, we can see that they prostituted themselves with other gods. Did they love mercy? They were more concerned with building up their idols instead of keeping God's covenants. And then were they walking humbly with God? 
Now they were walking boldly with their idols. And then we get to chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. And I'm not going to read the entire lament. I would encourage you to go through it. But we turn and Micah laments. Verse 8 says, Because of this I will weep and wail. God was planning on pouring out justice. And all Micah could do is turn and lament because of the sins of Israel. And it begs me to ask a question of when was the last time that we lamented over sins? When was the last time that we cried or weeped over sins as a nation, as a church, as our individuals? People like Moses and Amos and Jesus and Paul found that lamenting was an appropriate way of communicating to their audience their deep sorrow for what was about to happen and and through sin. The loss of concern over sin in the church is frightening, and I think it produces an unsecure boldness in our lives. So we think that we aren't going to be judged for it. We haven't been judged yet, so we can continue on sinning. And yes, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ should make us rejoice that we have hope, that we are no longer in sin, that we can rejoice in the end. But sin still rules and reigns on this earth. And Israel gets complacent simply having the title of God's chosen people, and that makes them bold to erect these idols. And I think the temptation is that we erect idols in our own lives. They may not be golden calves. I don't have a golden calf sitting out front of my house at home, at least not that I'm aware of. So it hasn't happened yet. But I think we can, I think there's other things that we can put as idols. Anything that's in front of God is essentially an idol. So are there places that we have compromised and convinced ourselves that it's okay to put this in front of God? uh, Because after all, God is a love of grace, a love of a God of love, a God of grace, a God who's going to continue to bless us. And then we think like Israel, that we can come on Sunday mornings and appease him for two hours out of the week. I didn't do the math on how many hours are actually in the week, but two hours out of the week, and then that'll appease God, and then we can kind of go on our merry way after Sunday morning. And we never come face to face with the sin that so easily entangles. And Israel's hope was in their national identity as God's chosen people. And they didn't put their um, hope in their obedience and in their relationship with God. We're going to jump to Micah 2. So we're going to kind of keep going through the book here. Um, Again, Micah 1, 8 through 16, very interesting passages. Micah fleshes that out. I would highly encourage you to read through that uh, lament. So we've already addressed that the nation of Israel isn't isn't acting justly, isn't loving mercy, isn't walking humbly with God. Now we're going to turn to the people of Israel. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do so. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore, says the Lord, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In in that day, men will ridicule you. 
They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possessions is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns it. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. So he is condemning people who late at night plan and plot to try and swindle as much money as they can out of anyone that they can uh, swindle out of. And then in the morning executes on that plan. No matter what's going to happen to them, I'm going to get as much for me. And I don't care what happens to the rest of them. And they're going to do it by seizing fields and taking houses. And Pastor elaborated on this last Sunday how for us, if our house gets taken, you know, we still have a job. We still have our livelihoods in uh, this day and age where Mike is preaching. If their land, if their lot is taken from them, they have taken everything from them. They have taken their inheritance from them. They have taken their livelihood. And why are they doing this? Does it say because they're a bank? Because they've defaulted on their mortgage? No, it doesn't say anything like that. It's not any type of legal thing. It's simply because they have coveted. They coveted the land. They covered it, coveted the lot. So they went and figured out how that they're going to steal it from them. And they went and stole it from them. So now we can see that Israel isn't just rebelling against God. He's, they're rebelling against the commands and the law of God in Exodus um, 2017, we have the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. They have replaced love for neighbor by greed with greed for financial gain instead. And I think this is comes in our culture with keeping up with the Joneses if if I can use that analogy, seeing someone else's property and thinking, man, I want that, even if it means I'm going to destroy them to get it right. And I think it's a command that is continually compromised in our culture daily. We have in verses one and two, the charge against the people of Israel and then the verdict. And the irony is the things that they were proud of to steal and covet They took all the land, they took all the possessions and said, here, look at all these things. Those are the things that are ultimately going to cause them disaster because their hope is in those things and not in the Lord God. So when we get to verse 6 in chapter 2, we kind of see this abrupt stop here. Do not prophesy, their prophets saying. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright. Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. Like men returning from battle, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away. This is not your resting place because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for these people. So the prophets aren't happy with Micah. I should say the false prophets aren't happy with Micah. They tell Micah to stop preaching. 
in a culture where all we want to hear is what's going to make us feel good, the things that tickle our ears, um, the thing where we compromise biblical truth daily, the confrontation of sin is not welcome. And you're going to see that they say, stop proclaiming. We don't want to hear this. They put it on verse 7a, and I think this is something that we hear a lot. Is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? So one, the opponents want him to stop preaching. And then two, they say, isn't God a God of love? Isn't God a God of mercy and patience? He would never do these things. And I just think back to the history that Israel has gone through thinking, how do you not realize God would do these things? Uh, Because it's been historically true. But either way, they're... Rationale is because, well, God loves us, so he won't judge us. I think that's familiar in our culture where we say, well, God is patient. And then we take God's patience and we say, well, if he's been patient with us, he must tolerate what we're doing. And if he tolerates what we're doing, then if long enough goes by, he must accept what we're doing. So we can easily take God's patience and move it to acceptance for sin because he hasn't done anything yet. And Micah says, you've got it half right. Uh, I love Micah's response. Of course God is good. He's not saying God isn't good here. He's saying, of course God is good to him whose ways are upright. Right. So, yes, God is a God of love, of kindness, of compassion, but he is also a just God. That is the whole reason that he had to send his son to die on the cross as atonement for our sins, because justice had to be paid. We go into verse 11. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for these people. It reminds me of Second Timothy Uh, Chapter four, verses three through five. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And I think verse five kind of encapsulates Micah's heart and Micah's goal here for us. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Having the teachings that are going to tickle their ears, make them feel good, build them up. And I'm not saying there's not passages in in scriptures that are meant for building up. There certainly are. But there's also ones that will convict and hold us accountable. And we don't and they didn't want to hear about that. They didn't want to hear how they weren't following God. Instead, they want to just suit their own desires and they're going to twist the scripture. Have you ever had someone say, here's my thought and now I'm going to go to the Bible to try and make the Bible fit into my thoughts, my kind of ideals, right? They're going to make the Bible conform to what they want it to conform to instead of making their thoughts conform to what the Bible says. We need to be more concerned with rightly dividing the word of God rather than bending the word of God to appease our audiences. So let's take out our litmus test one more time here for the people of Israel. Were they acting justly? We can see, no, they weren't. They were coveting and stealing and taking from the innocent. Were they loving mercy? 
They plotted and schemed against the innocent and chose deceit over truth, so they weren't doing that. And were they walking humbly with God? No, they were walking boldly in the ways of their culture. But Micah gives us hope. So it's not all doom and gloom. We get to some hope here in 12, uh, Micah 2, 12 through 13. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. So there's hope. There's not deliverance from the uh, sin that they're going to have, but there is hope, promised future hope and deliverance for salvation. So the nation will be destroyed, but God will bring them back because he has made an oath and he is faithful to his covenant. In verse 13, we see this Hebrew couplet, and I'm not going to flesh this out too much, but this is very interesting because it identifies the one who passes before them as the Lord, basically saying the king will go before them. So the king will pass through before them and then essentially reading the king, the Lord at their head. So who is the king? The king is the Lord. And then we're going to jump into chapter three here. The first two chapters, we talked about the nation of Israel, and then we talked about the people of Israel. Now we're going to talk about the leaders and the prophets of Israel. And let me assure you, God will hold leaders accountable. Verses one through four. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skins from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones into pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. So he starts off with a rhetorical question here. He says, you should know better. Micah is saying, you leaders who are in charge of Israel, you leaders and you prophets who have the word of God, who have the revelation of God, you should know better. And then he classifies them very interestingly. He says, you who love evil and hate good. Their leaders love evil and hate good. And then we have this metaphor that will exaggerate the depravity of how bad it has gotten. And essentially, when they are taken over, they're saying, you guys, you leaders aren't any better than the Assyrians that are sitting outside waiting to attack us. Right? Because this is what they're going to do. And it's already happening from within, from the leaders, from the, the prophets in the church. These types of things are already happening spiritually. You're no better than the opponents. And then verse four summarizes Deuteronomy 31, 17 and 18. I won't take time to read that, but um, I think sometimes God's wrath doesn't come in him pouring out justice on anything. I think sometimes God's judgment comes in the letting sin take its course. And I would say 
that the silence of God could almost be feared more than the loving justice and judgments of God, because it means that he's going to let you go in your ways and you're just going to continue going down and further and further into sin. We'll pick it up in uh, Micah 3, 5 through 12 here. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. This is a quid pro quo here, right? If, if you feed me, I'll proclaim peace to you. If you don't, I'm going to declare uh, war against you. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgrace. They will, they will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, talking about Micah himself here, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of the Lord, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice, who distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her preachers teach for a her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes of money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. So Micah contrasts himself now to the false prophets that he was just preaching against. And he says, <clears throat> the false prophets are proclaiming whatever you want to hear. They're teaching for a bribe. Can you think of, you know, if they had televangelists in Micah's time, you think that you would, it would be unheard of to hear of televangelists preaching for money? Right? That doesn't happen in our culture. Televangelists are, you know, they have good motives. Um, so, sarcasm, if you're listening to the recording later. Uh, but Micah, on the other hand, is filled with the spirit of the Lord, and it is with justice and might that he can stand to declare to Israel their sin. Standing up and confronting sin when it's an unpopular thing to do takes the spirit of the Lord. It takes uh, might and power through God to lovingly confront someone in their sin and not just confront them in their sin, but be willing to walk them through their sin to holiness in Christ. And we see as a result that ultimately Zion is going to be plowed like a field. Right. Um, instead of honoring God, instead of um, proclaiming God, they're just proclaiming whatever it is that the culture wants to hear. And uh, because of this, um, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble in verse 12. So we've done the litmus test for the nation of Israel. We've done the litmus test for the people of Israel. Let's take it to the leaders and the prophets. Are they acting justly? No, they have loved evil and hated good. It's actually very hard to say that appropriately. I keep wanting to say loved good and hated evil, but they loved evil and hated good. 
They proclaimed whatever the popular topic was for bribery rather than truth. Um, Did they love mercy? No, they destroyed the people. They did what was right in their own eyes at the expense of whatever it took to get there. And then were they walking humbly with God? No, they treated God like an idol to do their bidding, a genie in the lamp as if it were. I'm going to have God on my side. We're the people of God. I can do whatever I want, and I'm just going to call on God to deliver me. Right? So they weren't walking humbly with God. They were using him as an idol. As we go into verses uh, or into chapter four here of Micah, uh, really interesting study, and I would highly uh, suggest this study for anyone who wants to go through it, is to compare and contrast chapter three with chapter four. We're going to see a little bit of the comparison and contrast here, but we basically see what it looks like when you have sinful leaders running things and then when you have godly leaders running things. And our godly leader in this case is going to be Jesus Christ. So we're going to see a little bit of that here in um, chapter four, uh, but we won't flesh it out a whole lot. I I would suggest that you flesh it out um, after today as well. So Jerusalem is going to become a heap of rubble because of their corrupt leaders. And we see in chapter four, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. That's exactly what the leaders of Israel weren't doing. They weren't teaching God's ways so that they could walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord, our God forever and ever. So Zion with a uh, godly leader is going to be established chief among the mountains. And April and I just recently took a trip to New York And there are some really neat sites in New York. And we went up to a bunch of different ones. One that I'm just kind of thinking about, we didn't actually go and visit, but the Empire State Building would be a a neat one to visit. Or the Statue of Liberty, you know, going up to there and just seeing the Statue of Liberty. But the difference is you would go there for the all in wonder of this is a neat building or this is a neat thing that's been created. And then you're going to leave, right? Here, all nations, many nations will come to the, this temple of God, this holy place of God, and they are going to learn directly from a leader, from God himself, on how to walk in his paths. And they are going to take that word and they are going to go out um, from there and they are going to learn how to walk in his way. So comparing and contrasting the difference between sinful leaders and godly leaders going up to Jerusalem to learn 
the righteous ways of God, we are going to go and learn and, and learn how to walk humbly with him. In verse five, it says, we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God forever. <clears throat> so and the thing is here, he says in the end times, this is going to happen. But folks, we already the Lord God has already spoken to us. We already have revelation from the word of God. And I think sometimes we let our sinful nature get in the way of walking with God humbly and striving in every aspect of our lives to walk humbly with the Lord. And we must know what God has spoken to us, not just a couple of verses here and there out of the Bible, but the full revelation of God. How are we going to know what the Lord God has spoken to us without first opening our Bibles, secondly, reading our Bibles and then thirdly, digesting and meditating on the word of God. <clears throat> We're going to see later on in if you were to read through chapter, uh, verses six um, through uh, nine, that God, there is reassurance that God will reign no matter what circumstances we're in. So we've held the litmus test up for the nation of Israel. We've held the litmus test up for the people of Israel and the leaders and prophets of Israel. I think it's fair to do the same thing to God. So let's take the litmus test to God. Um, was God seeking justice or will God seek justice? Yeah, he's going to judge rightly between the nations. Will he have will he love mercy? He's going to have mercy on the lowly and the weak. He will make the lame the remnant. And will he be faithful to his covenant? Yeah, he's going to be faithful to his covenant. So all four litmus tests, God is the only one that's passing it so far. We're going to jump to verse 9 here in, in uh, Micah. So verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished that the pain seizes you like a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations gather are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise up and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you Horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and I will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, through you, are, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand against the shepherd, his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. 
They will live securely for his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. I'm not going to flesh out these sections too much for the sake of time, but essentially there's three different sections and uh, they're uh, verses nine through four in chapter four, verses 11 through 13 in chapter four, and then uh, Micah five, one through four. And they all start with deception or a description of disaster that's going to come and then promise deliverance from that disaster and then eventual establishment of the messianic kingdom. I want to point out one verse here that has a lot of irony behind it. In uh, verse 13, at the end, it says, chapter 4, verse 13, You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Remember how in chapter 1, verse 7, God says, uh, You have prostituted yourself to other Uh, idols other gods and you have raised these idols and we're going to tear down these idols and they're going to become used for prostitution in the future well god is coming back here and saying, i'm going to gather back what is rightly due to me i'm going to take those things that were ill-gotten gains uh, and i am going to uh, take them back as gains to the lord and their wealth will be to the lord for all the earth So we kind of see some irony here playing out in the middle of Micah from the beginning of Micah. Jumping down into chapter five, we have these kind of promises of deliverance, but it's all about the Lord God delivering Micah or delivering the nation of Israel. And we see that in verses five through six, that Israel's response is Basically, we don't need God. We're going to raise up our own leaders. We're going to deliver ourselves. Yes, we're the people of God, but we can do this on our own. We don't need necessarily God. We don't need to place our faith in God. We're going to place our faith and trust in the things that we have created. And those things are going to save us from the Assyrians. The Assyrians aren't going to make us fall because of the things that we have put together. And Micah's response in verses 7 through uh, 9 is basically, yeah, you are God's people, but it is only through the Lord God and, and God's plans and God's covenant and God's faithfulness and the will of God that you will be saved. So their hand will be lifted in triumph over their enemies, but it is only through uh, God, only through the sovereignty of God that that they will be saved. So even though they're being attacked right now, even though they're going to be destroyed, they will eventually triumph, but it's not going to be in the way that they want. I think oftentimes when we lay out our own plans, we think, you know, I am going to do this on my own. I'm going to do my own will, my own way. And God's going to be my fallback plan. I think that's kind of the idea that Israel had here. God is the fallback plan for them if they get into trouble. But I can do it on my own. I think walking faithfully with God is putting God first, relying on God's ways first and then your ways second. God will steer and direct you um, in your paths. So Israel had pride in themselves and ultimately they will be judged for their sin but God will still deliver them. And the question I have for you is, who are you placing your trust in? Are you placing your trust in yourself 
first or God first? Are you placing yourself in the things that you have made or the promises and truth of God? I think the biblical approach is a fellowship with God through every aspect of our lives, but especially when times get tough. God doesn't guarantee deliverance. God doesn't deliver Israel. God doesn't guarantee that, but he does promise that he'll walk through it with us. And I think the tendency is to depend on what we can do to control our future, just like Israel. So we get to Micah 5, verses 10, through the end of the chapter, and we won't read them, but essentially God is giving them hope again. Contrasted to earlier when Israel said that they were going to do it in their own strength, here we see that God is going to deliver them. And the main point in verse 13 is to stop putting our faith in the things that we have done and start putting our faith in God. Verse 13 says, I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. So all these things that they're putting together, he's going to destroy. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. You're going to bow down to God here. And then we get to chapter 6. And really, chapter 6 reads like a case in the courtroom. We won't read the entire chapter. We're going to spend a lot more time reading through Uh, Well, not a lot more time, but more time reading through chapter seven. But we basically have a call to attention, a calling of witnesses, an announcement of a case against Israel in the first two verses. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. And then God defends as if he needs to defend his own actions. Right. He says, what have I done to you How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. And he goes through this list that defends his faithfulness through the past. We see through the entire Old Testament this kind of God beating into Israel. Look at all the things that I have done for you. Look at all the history that I have pulled you through. Look at how I've been faithful to you through all this time. And Micah is doing the same thing here in chapter 6. And their response is the response that you would have if you had an idol. All right. So the charges are brought against Israel and their response is, what can I do to appease this? Uh, Is it do you want more money, God? Do you want more sacrifices, God? Uh, How can I pay you off? And I think the irony here is that I think we do that in our relationships. Um, April and I never have disputes. We never we never fight. That never happens. Um, So and if we do, hypothetically, uh, I'm never the one that's wrong. But let's hypothetically say that I was in the wrong, you know, but going up to April and saying, what do you want me to do this? Make it right. Do you want me to buy you flowers? I'll buy you a dozen. You want two dozen? I will buy you two dozen flowers if you want. Um, I think we do the same thing in our relationships today that the nation of Israel is doing to God here. And God says, no, I don't want it's not about that. Verse 8, our theme verse, he has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We won't have time to really flesh out what it means to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. I have a couple of verses up here, but Isaiah 117, acting justly, learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, 
plead the case of the widow. Right. So acting justly, loving mercy or another translation would be being faithful. I think either one could go on this particular one being loyally being uh, loyal to their covenant with God, loving God and following his commands and growing in a relationship with him, not just the two hours on Sunday mornings. And then walking humbly with God. Proverbs 11:2. when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But when humility comes, but with humility comes wisdom. A humble person is teachable. A prideful person thinks they're always right. When we walk with God humbly, we are more concerned with the will of God than our own will. Uh, For sake of time, I'm just going to kind of run through the back part of Micah 6 here. He basically says, we laid out all these things for you. Is Israel guilty? Yeah, all the things that we just talked about in chapters 1 through 3. Is Israel guilty? Yes, Israel's guilty. And he even fleshes out a couple more things in this verse that they're guilty about. And because of this, they will have destruction. God is a just God. He will judge rightly uh, when he is ruling and he is judging rightly with Israel. But he is still going to be loyal to his covenant. And when we turn to our last chapter where Micah laments, he ultimately summarizes chapters one through six for us. Part of me was thinking maybe I should just preach through chapter seven because he's basically summarizing chapters one and six, one through six. Um, but because of this judgment on Israel, we see what misery is mine. Uh, not that I have time for a side note, but something that just kind of popped into my head. I'm going to make time for a side note. Uh, I think sometimes when we evangelize, a lot of times with street evangelism, we tend to preach the hellfire brimstone stuff. And Micah isn't refraining from saying, you are going to have destruction if you continue in your ways. If, if I have not made anything clear, hopefully that is the clearest thing that I have made in Micah. He is saying, you will get uh, the judgment that is coming. But we also see a tender heart where he is loving and weeping over the sins that um, they have afforded. What misery is mine? Am I, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the earthly figs I crave. The godly have been swept up from the land. Not one up, upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled at doing evil. Just repeat that. Both hands, not just one hand, both hands are skilled at doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them, their very best, is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come, the day of the day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, Mike is speaking here. This is all going on. As for me, 
I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. May God, my God will hear me. In light of everything that is going on in the world around Micah, in light of everything that is going on in the world around us, I think we can take comfort in these words and take um, encouragement in these words and take them as a challenge. Are we watching in hope for the Lord? Are we waiting for God, our Savior, our God who will hear us? Verse 8, do not gloat over me, my enemy, though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. What a great picture of salvation right there, that we are under sin and it is the Lord God who pleads our case. It is Christ who stands before us. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls has come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from the sea to sea. From the mountains to mountains, the earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as the result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Micah is giving an intercessory prayer here, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed. They're deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears will become death. Death. They will lick dust like a snake, the creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. God is promising them deliverance again. There's hope. And Micah ends in verse 18 through 20. What a better way to end this entire book than with these verses here. In praise to God. Who is, like, who is a God like you? Who pardons the sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will reign again and have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. So in spite and in light of everything, in light of our sinfulness, in light of our rebellion towards God, In light of the wrath that is deserved, in light of the price that Jesus Christ has paid for us on the cross, in light of the sin and death and the victory over Satan, the Lord deserves all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor. We are reminded that God will show mercy and delights in mercy because it is because of the because he has sent his son to die 
for us. And in return, God asks that we act justly towards each other, that we love one another in spirit and truth, and standing firm on the word of God without compromise. That we would be obedient to the covenant that we have with Christ, our Lord, our God and Savior, and that we would be faithful to him. That we would walk humbly in his word in a manner that is teachable and to grow in knowledge of Christ, in wisdom and in stature. That we would seek and desire to trust first and foremost Jesus Christ over anything else that this world has to offer. In the end, we were pursuing sin. We were going after sin and sin was leading us to the grave. And through God's love, he has sent his son to die for our sins, that through God's saving power and his sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, he would bear our sins, rise again and triumph over sin and death, that we could have life eternal by following Jesus Christ. And all other things should be set aside. All we have is Christ. God alone would use our lives for his glory and our honor. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you get the glory and honor, that if there is sin in our lives, that we would flesh it out, that we would weed it out, that we would trust in you first and foremost for all things. We would lean on your wisdom. We would lean on your word. We would lean on your promises that we would find our hope and our rest and our joy and our peace in you, that you would be honored and glorified above all other aspects of our lives, that we wouldn't raise idols in our lives that stand in our way, that we'd be able to reflect uh, in our lives, in our homes, in our church um, about any idols that may be standing in the way, and we would be able to cast them aside and put you first and foremost. We praise you for sending your son, because without your son, we would still be rebelling against you. We would still be heading for the grave. And it's through your son, through Jesus Christ, that we can have assurance, that we can have encouragement, that we can have salvation and security for the future hope. And we just praise you and love you and want to give you all the glory and honor in your name.